From Rixie, this is Frameform, a show about movies, moving, and everything in between. I'm Hannah Weber. I'm Jen Ray. And I'm Claire Schweitzer. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in today. We have a very exciting show planned for your listening pleasure. We will be discussing dance film as it is created around the world. So we will be talking about different dance film practices and different contexts of creation and presentation. And I just wanted to mention at the very top of the show here that it's worth noting that the three of us co-hosts here are all based in North America and come from a dance background and grew up seeing film in a very specific context. Usually it was a cinematic context. Or if it was not in a cinematic context, the film was created with traditional cinematic language in mind. I think it's important to note that this is a bias that we constantly check every time we see films. And we acknowledge that many films that we do see were not created for these particular contexts. Dance and film and the hybrid language of screen dance created from these two particular languages are each very rich in and of themselves. And the hybrid form that they create is equally rich, or I guess has twofold that sense of richness. And there are so many different ways that we can interpret these languages depending on our backgrounds and depending on our familiarities with the form. We are very, very excited to dive deep into this discussion. But before we do that, Jen, Hannah, what have you guys been watching lately? Well... If anything, what haven't we been watching lately? I mean, there's a lot going on in the film world, in the experimental realm. Uh, Well, I'm always the one that's, I feel like I'm watching features constantly. But one feature I do want to talk about that I did watch this past weekend was Beyonce's Black is King visual album on Disney+. And what's the verdict? The film is king? Um, it is amazing. As someone who has watched all of Beyonce's visual albums, I am never like dissatisfied. I'm always pleased. I'm always humbled. I'm always like just excited and inspired when I watch these works of art on screen. You have to watch it if you haven't seen it yet. I do appreciate just like the level of just the production value, you know, it is a lot of obviously like money and resources put into these, but it just, it is quite stunning when you just see it. It's just such an impressive feat of artistic excellence and, and technology. And yeah, I, the, the portions that I have seen look great. And I do, I did see there was like at least one child in it. I don't know if there's like a main character that goes throughout, but that's great. Like, I think that that's really smart for it to be on a Disney Plus platform and for it to be children's content. Kids want to see themselves. There's a lot of conversation of people see, wanting, to, you know, saying representation matters. I want to see myself. Well, kids don't know. <laughs> kids don't have the language to say representation matters. But when you talk to them or when you remember what it's like being a young person, you know that representation matters. You want to see like those kid characters It was actually a little boy this time because it's based off of The Lion King. It's like Beyonce's take on The Lion King. 
Oh my gosh. Just like the costumes. Anyway, going back to your point on having kids represented on screen, I think it's just so good and so fantastic because like you said, like they don't see themselves on screen enough, even for a pop star. You know, we see kids emulating pop stars, but we don't see kids seeing themselves and being like, oh, I can be like that. It's very cool. And I mean, like the Lion King, I mean, it starts, you know, with the the whole circle of life, basically. And I, I think it was just such a clever way to, I don't know, take, I don't know, a kid's point of view or a kid's story and put it in a different lens where it's like combining also nature with urban is beautiful. And Blue Ivy is also in it as well. Yeah, and also Beyonce's mom is in it as well. And yeah, I mean, it's a it's a huge... Like, I think this is the biggest out of all of her visual albums that she's done. And like just the production design. I mean, the like I said, the costumes are on just another level. It's kind of like how um, I was reflecting on Barry Lyndon a while back. Uh, and it's epic. I'll say that. But it kind of reminded me of Barry Lyndon in a way where it's like every... Every, like, image, if you took a still of it, it was, like, just a, you know, a photograph or, like, a painting in time. Like, it was just, every time I hit, I didn't hit pause often, but I had to push pause a few times. But uh, I was just like, look at that background. Look at that color. And lots of dancing, too, I would imagine. There's a huge cast of dancers. And I actually paused just to see... uh if I knew anyone, because I <laughs> always, I, I don't know, like that, that could have been someone I went to high school with easily. Yeah. No, unfortunately, no one was, I didn't know anybody. But I, I do that too. Anytime there's like a film that comes in or especially something from a, a region that I've lived in or know quite a few people in, I always, I mean, I always check the credits anyways, but I will comb through that. Or like pause on the first group shot. But okay, who do I know? Anyone? <laughs> and it's cool because sometimes you can be really surprised. Yeah. Anytime I see a film from like the UK or that was, you know, made in either like the place or Laban, I'm like, okay, who who did I go to school with here? <laughs> but I definitely recommend it. If you have Disney Plus, take the time. I mean, it's an hour and a half, but it's totally worth it. Claire, have you seen any uh you were talking about TCM classics a while ago. Are you uh, expanding from there? <laughs> Slightly. I mean, I did get locked into their beach movie little marathon thing, which was just a bunch of. I mean, I mean, same story. Just yeah, different, those sixty, those sixties like uh, beach <laughs> classics are hilarious. Yep, and it does raise a lot of questions about like how these films affect the way that you see these locations. I actually drove out to Santa Cruz last week, and after doing that, I rewatched Us, which now every time I go to Santa Cruz, I am perpetually terrified that my double is going to hunt me down and kill me. So again, we are discussing films um, created in different parts of the world, and we pick these films because we feel that they are not only representative of types of films made in these areas of the world, but also reflect a lot of themes that are very pertinent and relevant 
to these different parts of the world. So, Jen, let's have you start in with our first film. It is an honor to discuss this film. You know those films that you just love right away? Like you see three seconds of it and you're like, this is so good. <laughs> yeah. that, that's like, I feel like this, that's this film for so many people. It's just so visually striking and then it sucks you in and you're hooked. So anyways, this film is The Color of Reality. It's directed by John Boogs. The dancers in it are Lil Buck and John Boogs. They're represented by Sozo Artists who reps their partnership Movement Art Is. And this is how they describe themselves. So they are an organization that uses movement artistry to inspire and change the world while elevating the artistic, educational, and social impact of dance. Through movement art films, workshops, performances, and exhibitions, MAI is resetting the spectrum of what dance is. And I think that, you know, some people write a mission statement or a vision or a bio that's aspirational. This is this lives up to what that description absolutely is. They've got a lot of great films. But today we're going to talk specifically about Color of Reality, which was a collaboration they did with Alexa Mead. Have you two seen any of Alexa Mead's art before this or was this like your first time seeing that? I'm just curious. This is my first time. This was my first time, too, but it's. Her style just seems very influential from works of art that I have seen in like museums or it's it's like expressionism, basically, to me, to me, at least. She takes something that is a 3D real thing like people or furniture or walls and paints it so that when you take a photo, it looks just like a 2D painting. So there's different installations that she's done and it's just really cool on its own. But combined with dance is just stunning so in this film like we're in we're for most most of it we're in this room and the two dancers are on the couch and they're they're watching the news so this film was released in 2016 the film is set in los angeles um but these two are american they're from uh i believe memphis and las vegas Um, i'm not actually sure but it's it it's a film addressing what is perceived to be very American issues, which is gun violence, particularly against black men. So it's it's a film that addresses this very serious issue that also came out, you know, summer of 2017, where there was a, a spike in in, I would say, discourse about it. And it's just was so timely and also is quite an incredible creative feat as well. And it's available online. And I just it's amazing to see new audiences rediscover this film because it's so impactful, not just from a a story or um, a a theme standpoint or its statement, but also just artistically how impressive it is. What do you two think of this film? I think it's a fantastic film. I think the paint plays such a huge part to the narrative. and. I mean, just their movement alone. I'm a huge fan of Lil Buck. I think he has a very uh, personal way of expression through hip hop and bone breaking or juking. Um, I, I, I really love it. And I mean, I definitely have written some stuff down about what I thought about the painting in general. I feel like it's just there's something about the work that makes me think of like a safe space in a way, or just like this is their world. And when they go out into the outside world, they are different, obviously. I mean, talking about the gun violence and being a target 
you know, in this case, they are the target because they're different, because people can't understand. But to me, it's also like they're removed from everyone else around them, which I think is just a fantastic take on that kind of storyline. I also think the film is fantastic as well. And you really do see two geniuses in absolute control over their instruments throughout, which in itself is a marvel to watch. I had a slightly tangential uh, interpretation of um, of the paint, and I sort of interpreted it as a way of in sort of like this painted space, fundamentally a a space or a a world they can't escape from or a circumstance that they can't escape from that others do have the privilege of being able to escape from and often ignore. Like there's that that scene on the street where. Again, there's a, like, this sort of jarring sense when they uh, are removed from this one hyper stage colorful setting to a more everyday street setting and people are just ignoring them and really passing by with very little thought. Like even at the very end with someone bleeding on the pavement, there's someone who's just walking by as if it's you know something that they see every day. And it does really implicate whoever is watching that this is a condition or this is a state of being that for many is is inescapable. And I think on a literal level, you're looking at at two people who are painted. It looks so jarring when you see them next to the people that are outside that are not painted and quote unquote, the real world outside. And if they're literally painted, it, they are they're physically othered. And it's based on like their color. They're they're othered in the in the context of the film. And then on top of that, you also have the fact that because the way that the the painting is done and it's originally set up, it's two dimensional. And they're watching the news and we see like a clip from CNN. So the viewer, like if we were watching the film, we see the same video kept intact like we would if we were watching the news. But then we also see this like two-dimensional representation that is taken out into the quote-unquote real world or the outside world and they're seen in this two-dimensional way because even John's hair is I noticed like it's not all his real hair that's in the shot like they added like flatter pieces and painted them so I think it's a way of showing like two-dimensionality and the fact that people can be judged or seen as not as fully dimensional as they are, which makes them the target for this violence. Yeah, it's almost like uh, being desensitized, basically. I mean, as we watch the news every day or read the news every day, I mean, it at a point, it's like we're unaffected by it. So, which is really interesting when we get to the scene when they're shot and we see, like, literally red paint. Like, that is red as day. And... And yeah, it's so it's so the opposite from the colors that they are wearing. It's a lot of neutrals. It's a lot of blues that red just takes over and the people around them are still desensitized. They're not affected. Again, it's interesting to that you bring that up of this 2D reality seeing in this way that makes you question like. Why, you know, like, why are we? reacting this way and this is like when we see work like this it's it should be shown to a larger audience 
to have them realize. I mean, this is a clear film of just social justice, basically, just kind of there's a call to action here. Yeah, there's very much a call to action and really a call to attention as well. And it's in a film like this, it kinesthetic empathy says so much. I mean, we we see the I mean, the, the embodied pain and the movement, but we also see the relationship of someone who's you're looking and, you know, trying to connect with someone else and having the other person with their body essentially react indifferently too. And again, it's super, it's very implicating to an audience who, I mean, in some cases, some people might say, well, this isn't affecting me directly. So I have the ability to shift my attention away from it. But for many, they don't have a choice. It's a a part of daily life, trying to negotiate those spaces. And, you know, trying to be like on alert through these spaces is very, very much an embodied part of life for many, many people. And I think this is a theme that we see across the world with dance filmmaking and with screen dance, because maybe it's the whole artist's heart and us being so empathetic and open minded and wanting to create change and using our our voices. But something that I think dance does so well, like I think film documents really well, it can capture reality, can also manipulate it maybe better than any other art form, I would argue, like you know, because you're looking at an altered what originally was at least partially a real capture of the real world or something in the real world. But anyways, so I think like film does that really well. And I think this is across all the films we're talking about today, but certainly with this film is dance can be both a a medium for activism because you're, you're seeing the message that's portrayed or you physically like seeing someone move might cause you to move or to feel physically activated, you know, um, it might hit, or it might hit you on that heart level. But dance can also be a euphemism, you know, to address really tough issues and to give it some sort of voice without having voiceovers of firsthand accounts or like seeing security camera footage. You know, it's it's a way to take something challenging and make it at least a little more palatable in a way. I hate to say palatable, but you know what I you know what I mean though, right? It's taking something that's challenging and then making it easier to to process or digest so that you can address it and not ignore it. Yeah, again, it's that whole idea that we've said in the very beginning of this, it's just like how do we make it universal in a way? to for audiences to understand i mean this is not passive watching this is actively watching and uncovering and diving into something that we can try to figure out and learn more about from what we're watching on the screen so i want to go into our next film the dairy uh directed by tanine tarabi and this film i could say I mean, the first time I saw it was actually with you, Jen, at your festival um, at Cascadia or Capital. I can't remember exactly we which one premiered. It both, but you would have seen it at Cascadia first. Okay, so I saw it at Cascadia, and I feel we have some similar themes going on with color and reality in this film. Now, the Dariv takes place in Iran. And for those who don't know, Iran does not allow dancing 
because they don't they have banned in the, the 1970s uh, dancing with opposite sexes. So in this scenario, we see our dancer, which is actually Tanine herself, dancing. I'd say dancing like subtly. Swimming, moving, floating. Yeah, in a public uh, market, which is very, very, uh, we could say shock value. We could say daring. Talk about daring to dance in public in that scenario. What do you guys think of this film and how it brings a cultural message to audiences? I just want to say that for a film, a, a dance film made in a country where dance is prohibited and also knowing knowing Tanin and for some context, this was actually made between her two years of her MFA in Ireland. Safe to say this film, um, a film featuring dance is probably not going to be seen in Iran. And um, seeing this film screen worldwide, they obviously there's a cultural interest that people may have in seeing a world that maybe they don't know. But they can also relate to the dancer trying to find her way through the spaces in an environment that may not be very accommodating to that. So this film, to me, I see it as a document of a social experiment. And because it has been viewed in different countries or by different audiences, it is somewhat of an ongoing experiment. Uh, At my festivals, I've had families attend i've had you know my audience ranges from tweens to grandparents and you know i love that because we get such a wide range of feedback and this film is always singled out and just offers so much perspective i mean anyone that that has a that is involved with film festivals knows that you get a lot of emails from iran asking for waiver codes because you know speaking of filmmaking or uh functioning in just trying to make dance films in Iran, there's all these barriers, you know, uh, it's not like you can freely send money outside the country to submit for films. So in a way, there's just so many layers to this project and it does offer such perspective. And also Tanine, you're a badass. I remember her saying, and I don't, I don't want to speak for her because this is her film and she has her own connection to it. But I remember her saying that when it comes to the way that different cultures perceive dance, and specifically when it comes to the way that Iran was perceived dance and perceived it in a way that they decide to ban it, the general society's idea of dance is something that's very different than the way that the dance is being performed in in the film. And sort of her um, caveat was, well, if someone blames me for dancing in public, I could just ask, like, is this dance? What do you define as dance? Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to see. It's one of those in, those projects where if you're watching it, whether it's on a, you know, in a theater or no matter what size audience, like you are part of the watching that's happening in the video, because as she's moving through this public space, you see so many different reactions. And that that becomes part of the experience is you know, reaction videos are extremely popular right now. And this is like living a reaction video in a way because you're reacting to the reactions that are happening in the, in the scene. It's like you mentioned, Hannah, with the with Daring to Dance in Public. 
I told Tinny when she when we accepted the film because she submitted it. I was like, you have to submit it to the Dare to Dance in Public Festival. Shout out to Sarah Elgart. But like, I think my key word for this film is perspective. For sure. I mean, this film definitely is a point of view of how we're following someone in a space. In this circumstance, we could say that we are the camera following her i mean we're also you know experiencing and in shock or have curiosity to what she is doing is she dancing you know like i love how subtle her movement is and it's very captivating and magical i think it's a fantastic yet also very daring approach when she actually makes eye contact with the camera. I mean, right there, it's a a revealing of identity. I don't know what the laws are for dancing in public, you know, in that kind of environment, but you know, that's tricky. I mean, that's setting you up for something. And I think if that film was shown in Iran, I mean, who knows what could happen? The one word that stands out for this film and for, I mean, Tanine's work as a whole is you know, just commitment and not just commitment to, you know, putting your body on the line in this environment. But stylistically, a seven minute single take film is a commitment and a very bold choice, especially for someone who made this film while you know she was a student. And something else that I've always felt every time I watch this, that the sound score is absolutely perfect for this film it's very mystical like i said it's very again like that captivating and subtlety approach you know you're just kind of you know i'm following i'm watching i'm interested it doesn't get boring to me it has like a mixture of it kind of has like these two and i'm not an expert in music this is one of my flaws as a dancer that i and publicly committing to improving. But there's sort of two main themes I'm hearing in the music. Like there's the part that's very, that's much more dynamic and almost feels like sneaky. Like it's almost like the twilight zone. Like it kind of sounds like that. And then there's this like consistent sort of hum. And I think the mix of that like heightened, almost nervousness and the kind of muted fog is so perfect. It's almost like her plus the mass that she's moving through. Very innocent disruption, but it's still something that's disrupting the you know, the auditory environment nonetheless. It also shows a different hierarchy of the role music might play because it's not as if she choreographed movement to this pre-existing song with lyrics that gave her the narrative she was going to express, right? It, this was... Um, you know, almost concept first movement as a result of or as part of the experiment and the live, the documentation of the actual film. And then the music, I maybe she knew what music it was going to be, but maybe the score was just added after. But it maybe because it was added after that composer was able to pick those elements and say, like, this is what I think this should sound like. And that's really interesting, too, is just how different films prioritize those those elements and the reasons why. 
so yeah, next we're going to be um, talking about two films. Uh, one is from Mexico and one is from Argentina. And both really do provide a window for those who aren't familiar into the world of video danza or like dance film as it's practiced in Central and South America. I think Super Mambo is actually a great introduction to this world because it is, I guess, to an audience that's very used to sort of a traditional cinematic format or a traditional music video format of film, they can easily latch on to sort of the format of the film. But the actual, the way that it was filmed and the structure of the movement, or rather the stills of the movement, create a new relationship of the movement with the camera. Um, But what do you guys think? I love Super Mambo. I thought it was an experiment but a very well put together experiment in a way I was thinking of, again, it's like how we talked about in the budget, a budget episode, you know, how do we take something, you know, with low cost, but high, highbrow idea. And I feel that this film definitely emulated that. Uh, For me, it was, you know, when we describe dance, there's always you. How do you get from A to B? How do we cause an effect? In this way, I felt like there wasn't no and. It was A B, not A to B, but A B. That's such a good description of it. Totally. And as an editor, like I love that, and I can't see that film with that too, that A to B, because of how they move amongst the screen. You know, they're one's putting their foot up you know, one standing on one leg, but then they're facing the other way in like the next half second. It's genius. It's like the choreography of the jump cut. And you're right. Dance, so much we focus on quality of movement and dance is a language of movement, but this Transition is essentially... to movement. Yes. So you like, you almost take like the dance out of it from a, from a, the person, the people's bodies that you're seeing but you add the dance by the way that those elements are arranged and by, you know, the, the composition being the visual arrangement of elements and the rhythm of your edits and how much negative space is on screen and how does that sound with this and which poses are they alternating between now? And also, like, her amazing hairstyle and their weird glasses, like... This reminded me totally like it just it was so nostalgic. Like It reminded me of I was never good at scrapbooking. I call it photo butchery. But like it reminds me of like the scrapbooking I tried to do in the 90s with like photos of my friends with our crazy like twisty hair and goofy bucket hats and glasses like this kind of looked like that, even though there's no bucket hats in this film. But aesthetically, it was very hip and i could see it's being made now too which is the other yeah. thing it has a very flip book approach yes and then the one moment you do get of dance which is like the dj scratch it feels so jarring you're like oh no they're dancing for like two seconds and then it goes back to the stop motion i i love this film thank you for showing us this film yes thank you for sharing claire that's uh, this was such a gem yeah and it's a nice bridge between i guess what an american audience that's used to seeing dance in a specific way, it's a, a good way for them to be introduced into another, a whole nother world and a whole nother established practice of filmmaking, which can be seen in the, ne- in the next film, Ayedo and Yamas. 
So this is a film that was made in Argentina in 2005, directed by Laris Gonzalez and Francisco de la Cerda. And it's very indicative of a type of filmmaking that's not necessarily unique to Central and South America, but is very uh, prominent in academic circles in screen dance. But first, for some context, when it comes to dance film in South America and Central America, there's a lot of it. And it is a very, very well-established practice. South American festivals, I think with the exception of dance on camera, I think South American festivals are the longest continuing running dance film festivals in the world. And like festival uh, in Buenos Aires has been around for 24 years. Um, Danza en Foco in Brazil has been around for about 18 years. And the Red Eve Network, the um, Ibero-American network of video dance festivals is one of the most established and well-organized networks in dance film. The approach is a very academic one. Like there's a lot of theory behind the creation of these films and just tons and tons and tons of books and articles that have been published. Like one festival, Ahita Isirva, actually has like a four volume collection of books that a lot of um, the practice of dance film comes from the world of video art and can be tied to some specific artists. So, for instance, in Mexico, one of the first pioneers of video dance was a woman named Paula Weiss, who really had a performative relationship with her and her camera. Like, I, again, before we started recording, I showed a picture of her in a very pretty little Sunday dress with some cowboy boots holding a camera. So it was very much examining sort of like the process of creating the film rather than creating like a certain like a certain film product. And a big concept in specifically in academic circles, like one concept that I actually was taught as I was taking workshops is the notion of embodied camera, that the camera is as opposed to situations like, for instance, if I'm documenting a performance, one of the first things I was told there was to take the camera out of it. But in a situation like this, the camera is very much a, a part of the action and really, really documenting the action. And I could go on and on about different theories. But with this particular film, Aida in Yamas, was a response to a situation that happened in this Argentine town of Aida, where a train was destroyed in a riot and one of the rioters was taken as a political prisoner for two years. And this film was featured people who are in that town. So mostly non-trade dancers. So people who, but people who regularly go to this particular train station who have the experience of being in, you know, very crowded conditions, in very dangerous conditions, having to endure this on a daily basis. The very words embodied camera give you so much information because when you start studying film at all one of the first things that you learn about is the camera as the eye what does the camera see and we think about the camera as that specific function of a body versus you know thinking about the camera as the body and the spirit versus the eye in this situation which i think is so necessary for dance because one of my biggest pet peeves is when films are stationary for no reason the camera can really do so much and be so expressive that why wouldn't it dance with the dancers? Again, going to apparatus theory, we're watching it in a, you know, a dark room where basically 
a part of it at that point because we're so invested and involved. You know, this whole film has a bodily experience when watching that we are a part of the dancers. We're in the core with them experiencing this train ride, basically. Regarding the aesthetics of the film, I don't want to make a direct link to third cinema practices, but there's a tenant in third cinema, which is a, a Latin American film movement that started in the 60s and 70s that very much decried like a Hollywood model of cinema as mere entertainment and was a blatant rejection of you know traditional production values and specifically production value set in place to validate a certain film or a certain film practice. Like there were actually manifestos written and collective screenings and the screenings themselves were called mise en scène. And this is very typical of these kinds of screenings followed by discussions are very typical in academic circles. Like oftentimes if you go to a symposium with these types of films being seen, you'll usually see four to five hours of lectures preceding the film screenings. So if you're someone who maybe doesn't have a familiarity with the way that this this work is made, then that's a great introduction and it gives you a great good frame to receive the work. However, if you don't have that frame, things become challenging. And especially if you're trying to program this work for a general audience who you think might get something out of it, there's a lot that needs to be put in place in order for that film to screen successfully. I think that's really interesting to think about what the audience of the film is because there's there's the reality of, okay, what's the actual audience once it's made? But then there's all this time before that, as it's being made, before it's being made, who is going to see this film and also who is who is paying for the film? How does this come into existence? There's so many layers to how these different projects are made and what sort of values end up tri- triumphing or coming through. And I love that there are so many great dance films that do address serious issues, are very conscious and have this intent of getting these conversations out in the world and making people aware of these things. And it's so challenging because at the same time you have that a lot of the, I would say at least in North America, a lot of the most production value or the most funded projects or things that get seen the most are often the most commercial realizations of dance versus these more artistic and socially activating examples. These are the kinds of things where maybe you'll see it shared on social or maybe you'll see it at an event, but there is not always that general audience because unfortunately, often when we're talking about a mass audience for something, we're talking about the cultural fast food. We're not talking about your veggies and greens here. Commercial fast food is definitely what we're experiencing the most. And this film has a social justice approach with this documentation of time that, you know, when you look at it at first, you don't think it could be a dance film. I mean, I've watched a lot of dance films in my experience. I haven't seen enough of these types of works that include not trained bodies. They're all, I'm always seeing trained bodies. In this case, I'm seeing more pedestrian, which I think is more, more relative to those audiences in that nature. I mean, I think that's important for this work. I think 
more films should include all p- kinds of people, all types of people. I think that's what sells more uh, coming from like that kind of kind of lens in my I'm all about the humanistic experience. I think that's what's happening even now as we're trying to come together as we could say as the world. We're trying to come together and do something and make change and do what's right. And that includes all people, all types of people. And that's something that you you can't question when you're working on something that speaks on such a high social level. Definitely. And I think for films that are addressing these more serious issues of humanity or rather inhumanity in some cases, it does feel more impactful to watch non-dancers because at the end of the day, those films are not about look at look how high this person can jump, look how many turns they can do, look at their quality of movement. This is very much about the concept or about dance the the technique is definitely not the focus with things like this. And I think that actually is both what makes it less accessible because it's like, wait, we're watching something that's dance, but it's not dance. You know, it's confusing for audiences that aren't willing to approach dance in that more creative way. And at the same time, it just feels right. I'm think I keep thinking of um Separate Sentences, the film that we talked about a couple episodes ago different films but similar idea where real people do really give that real message more grounding yeah i mean it's more it's raw it's not uh glorified we could say that learning dance is a privilege you know and in this case i mean to put it on that again that humanistic level don't put them on a podium you know don't put them on that proscenium you're putting them in the actual environment I mean, in a way, when I was watching this film, uh, I could think of it as a live installation and we as an audience could follow these people. And again, it's that bodily experience that I said earlier. I mean, we're a part of it, but I could see this as a live performance and and actually walk and follow along with the dancers through these locations, which could be even more impactful as an experience and a spectator going through the events that took place. And a big tenet of of this kind of screen dance work is that the accessibility is really the key word. It's showing that many people, you know, deserve to have their to share their stories and to record their stories, even if they don't have like the you know, Alisacon leg to the side or yeah, have the fanciest camera. And this is a debate that's circled around again in academic circles where there are always a lot of theories related to low-tech approaches in screen dance and how that opens the door for more voices to be heard, which is key because accessibility is not... A lot of people interpret making films accessible as making them easier to consume. But what accessibility really is, is having someone in the audience see themselves as a part of the film. I remember when I was first, when the first dance film festival I went to, uh, it was actually a San Francisco dance film festival. I mean, I was blown away by the films with huge production values, but I was like, okay, that's, you know, that's great, but that's well beyond, you know, what I'm ever going to be able to do. But then there were films that looked like they were just, you know, shot on a T3i in someone's apartment. And it was those films that said like, hey, I can do that. 
it was a film that gave me permission to do that. And I think that showing films at a variety of different production values and from a variety of different movement backgrounds and movement theories is really, really key as far as increasing the number of people who are involved in in the art. Definitely. I I think that right now, you know, we're still still in COVID. I think right now is such a huge opportunity for curators to really shine because you don't have that reputational risk of I don't want to program something that people won't pay to see or people will walk out of. Like I'm being extreme here, obviously, but it removes that risk in a sense. And it also because the audience now is the world more than it was when you were programming something for a live event happening somewhere specific. If you want to show a wider range of films or, or things that maybe are quote unquote less accessible, it's such a great opportunity to do that now. And, but I will say that I already do see a lot of variety in the curation and in what people want to see when it does come to dance film. Like I think if you're open-minded enough to already be watching screen dancer dance film, it's not too hard to kind of radicalize you almost <laughs> like move you into more experimental or less familiar territory uh, because you've already crossed that threshold of I'm, I'm watching something very different here. I'm watching dance film or screen dance or something that is not something I'm familiar with. Well, with all these films that we've talked about today, I have one question that I have questioned myself while watching, which was all of these films, maybe not super mambo, but have some kind of message and call to action. There's context given to us. Do you think these films without the context given can survive on their own? One thing to think about here, though, that I had to think that I was stewing, we could say, was like a film, Ayerosa and Yamas, which provides a lot of context. We need a program to read before or after the film. As film festivals go online these days or festivals don't print out their programs like they used to, or they go online and we're also in an age where people are not really reading that kind of material, which is really unfortunate. But with that thought in mind, you know, if I was watching that film or the derive, could, could we understand it on its own? From a curatorial standpoint, it's really important to frame the films that you're showing appropriately because obviously they're made by certain practitioners, in some cases, for a very specific context. For or instance, with Ayora and Yamas, Ladis Gonzalez, the primary director, has written articles about this. She's presented symposiums about this. She's you know spoken extensively about the process of creating this film. And again, like in the context it was created in, it's very understandable why those choices were made. But granted, if you were taking this to a North American film festival context and you presented it to an audience without any proper information about it or related to the creating of it, it could have unintended an, an unintended reaction. And I think a lot of it revolves around this notion. This is 
I don't again, I don't want to totally generalize, but this is so pervasive when it comes to North American festivals in that a lot of people think that a progression of technological level is key to a film success or like legitimizes the way that you make the films. And especially living in the Silicon Valley, that is a just a pervasive mentality that, you know, tech is king. (laughs) You definitely have to be careful with the way that you um, present the film and consider what other films are going to be seeing along with it, too. I don't think a lot of short filmmakers really create films with the understanding or really the agency of what else is going to be shown along with it. So that's really up to the curator to you know, present that film in a way that it can have a a positive reception or at least a fair reception. I will say as a curator, that is one of my favorite parts of the entire festival. Other than the supercut, that is my absolute favorite. But my second favorite part is arranging films in the order for the screening because it completely transforms your experience of them. I think I did a pretty good job too. But it's part of the the way that you're experiencing that particular film. And I think now, again, talking from a more, at least my like North American perspective, but also my millennial perspective, in a way, social media kind of is the new context. People don't read, but they scroll. So if you show oh, here's a shout out for the different collaborators and here's a behind the scenes shot. Like that becomes the kind of context for the film or how how it plays out on these various digital platforms becomes the new ethos or like the world surrounding the projects that we see. But it is so sad that people don't read <laughs> as much as they used to. And also that this becomes another barrier for entry because it's almost, and for what too, because Mark Zuckerberg started a like, let's rate hot chicks platform in college. Like that's the roots of this, you know, it's just very interesting how the economy shifts. And at the same time, the internet has made us more connected than ever and more able to share our work than ever. And it's democratized dance and film consumption and production. There's also these traps in it. And I don't know what the answer is, but I look forward to digesting that as we go through this season. And hey, we also have an email. So if you're listening to this and you want to send us some nuggets or films or say, you talked about this country and I live there and you have no idea what you're talking about or you got that spot on. We want to hear. Right. Because this is it's a conversation between the three of us right now, but it's really a much bigger conversation and it's an invitation to we're talking about global perspective in this episode and we only there's only so many films we can talk about. So going forward, we want to be able to talk about different scenes, different schools, different phases, different trends, different histories in dance film and screen dance. Like I had no idea that the longest running film festivals or dance film festivals were South American. In my mind, I was like, Dance on Camera Festival has been around for such a long time. I bet they're the the elders. And in, in I guess regionally they are. But it is very important to constantly be expanding and learning that, no, this is very much a thing in various parts of the world. And I think something that that shifts as we go to different regions as well is how are the films being made and supported? Because there are certain areas 
that we see more films from or higher production value from how many times have you watched just a, a video and it ends and you see the that fingers crossed lottery funded logo from oh, England. Yeah. oh yeah <laughs> yeah you're like oh that's why it was so good you know it's just very interesting that we see these sort of hubs or these centers where where the money and the support seems to be for these things to get made and then shown it's just so great. I mean, I think more work in anywhere should have this kind of method of funding. I mean, it, it's really satisfying in the dance film community to see work getting funded and getting it out there to audiences all over the world. I wish we had that in North America, but unfortunately we don't. Yeah, it's, um, I think equitable funding structures are few and far between. I mean, no matter where you are, I mean, obviously there's some areas of the world that have, you know, a very all-inclusive, all all levels of artist funding structure in place. But when it comes to the United States, it feels like the more established you are, the more funding gets pulled to you, which is such a slap in the face to young developing artists who, you know, have a lot of have energy, have a point of view, and just need that extra support in order to to share their perspectives. I see a lot of great films with high production value, high levels of creativity that are privately funded and that don't have government grants. And while there might not be those central funding bodies that are existing on a federal or a state level, I do think there's a lot of opportunity and of course crowdfunding is a, is an option as well. There's a lot of films, a lot of projects that and ultimately I I think it's a good solution because if if we're talking grants, we're talking government money, we're talking taxes. At the end of the day we are talking taxes. And something I th- I think about is people that are maybe working jobs that they they do or don't like that are fulfilling or not fulfilling, whether they like it or not, money gets taken out of that paycheck. And it's it it just adds this weight to what kind of projects are funded. And not everything is going to be fair competition in a way for those for those funds because not everyone's passion project, I hate to use this word deserves, but like not everyone's passion project should be fund it publicly funded and if it is publicly funded then at least where my values take me is crowdfund it get the money on the front end from from your audience directly and i just you know i know this might be an unpopular thing i'm saying but i just want to be a voice that is giving permission to those young people who hey when i started making films i didn't have any money i was working you know a couple jobs and saved up and did a low budget thing and took it from there. And I think that we can also be part of the creativity with a lot of these films is on the production side. How do you creatively make it happen? And as much as we are talking about funding and that we want our governments and our organizations to value the arts, the the money question is a real, is a real deep conversation with a lot of layers to it. Well, it's also uh, important to consider different values between countries and exchange rates. I think from a curatorial standpoint, I know that whenever 
you're looking through film submissions that you commonly get requests for waivers. So submission fees are um, certainly a topic of debate in the screen dance world. And certainly there's an ethical debate of whether artists should pay to have their work considered. And depending on the country you're in, like 55 American dollars can translate to maybe it's just pocket change for one person. But for another person, like that's 10 percent of your monthly income or the the film's budget. (laughs) Exactly. Maybe not 55, but all the submission fees you combine. It's like, how much are we spending to try and get this film scene versus to make it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And but at the same time, it's not like any dance film festival profits from submission fees like that's just a small dent of the operating budget it's a whole production and i i support it i just wish to see more global work in the future i again claire thank you so much for uh introducing us to uh to these video donza films i definitely want to see more it definitely sparked my brain up today yeah and I do want to mention that this is just from like reading and research I haven't actually taken any attended any events in South America or any have taken any kind of um, workshops in South America so if there are blind spots um, if anyone's listening I would be more than happy for you to fill them in where should we where should we be talking about next where in the world Shall we go? Well, speaking of where we could go next, uh, we have a few announcements this week. Uh, For screening, we have Choreoscope International Dance Film Festival in Barcelona, which will be happening online this year. It's actually happening right now as we're speaking. It started September 14th and it will be going on till the 27th. So check that out. And then we also have a submission deadline coming up, Dance Camera West in Los Angeles, California. Make sure you get your film right in on October 1st. And like we say every week, all of this information that we are giving to you will be featured in the show notes. So please take a look at that. And that's our show, basically. We did it. We talked about global cinema. I'm really happy that we had the opportunity to sit down and talk about these films. And I encourage everyone to sit down and watch them. And if you want to re-listen to the episode and go back and fully understand what we're talking about, please do. We want, to, we want you to experience what we're experiencing. And we would love recommendations as well. So if you are listening to this and there are some films you want us to talk about or region you want us to cover, please email us at frameformpodcast at gmail.com. And also, please follow us on Instagram. We are live on social media and that is frameformpod. And that is, again, frameformpod. And uh, again, like, subscribe. We don't have a Facebook. Just subscribe. (laughs) Follow us. (laughs) Well, friends, what a great day of conversation and another episode in the books. Uh, We'll talk next week. Yeah. In the meantime, I will be watching a lot of music videos this week. Oh, (laughs) yes. Tune in and find out more. See ya. Bye. Laurent, you've got this. 
Frameform is a production of Rixie, hosted by me, Hannah Weber, Claire Schweitzer, and Jen Wright. Edited and mixed by myself and Mason Carlton. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.